waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. Cogitating on Donald Hoffman's conversations with us, what's the takeaway? Mike and Polly spend some time reviewing what they learned and what they're thinking about in relation to their podcasts 11 and 12. What are the implications for new developments in conscious realism? Because conscious realism brings human subjectivity into the forefront of what we take to be the world out there. It shares a lot with real dialogue. Where do they overlap? Where might they depart from each other? Join us in trying to understand how human consciousness grows and develops through an interactive network of conscious agents. Hi, Polly. Hey, Mike. It's uh, great to be with you to talk about this because this is what you and I talk about in our spare time. Yes, it is. <laughs> so I guess I would ask you what's, you know, sort of what stands out in your takeaway from these two really incredible conversations that we have out there as podcasts. What, you know, they really occurred in the same setting, but I think they're wonderful for exploring things that are just now developing. They're on the very edge of physics. It's on the edge of cognitive psychology. And I think that Real Dialogue has a very big interface with those edges. So tell me what, what's in your takeaway? Well, the first, uh, I think the big takeaway for me is the earth-shattering nature of Hoffman's theory of conscious realism and how it seems to really challenge people's core beliefs that I've noticed, or at least in my impression in speaking with people who may not be 
quite down in the rabbit hole as you and I go into studying consciousness and the subjective nature of reality is that it seems uh, feedback that I get from many people. It seems that some people get enraged when they hear this. They certainly want to push back and fight or argue as if just discussing this idea somehow strips them of something that they have attributed to the essential or fundamental nature of reality. So for me, Hoffman's work, I mean, for me personally, it's, it's earth shattering. This idea that our subjective perception, that the subjective nature of perception and our awareness of our awareness is what gives rise to our experience or arises within our experience. And that it's not that we're perceiving something out there. I think this is the big shock that we can only speak about our subjective experience. We cannot make any meaningful statements about quote, objective reality. And that this is part of a, an evolutionary development that we go through. So that this network of conscious agents that he theorizes, that Donald Hoffman theorizes, it's through these interactions that we have with each other that give shape to what arises in our experience through attribution intention. And one of my thoughts that I've kind of been playing with a little bit is that first, what's the first set of networks that we are born into? the most influential, perhaps, our family. Right. How strongly that shapes how we experience, how we feel part of reality. It's such a powerful experience that I guess frequently we don't even examine how much we have been shaped by those early connections. Well, it's because it's the water that you're swimming in and you don't even know you're a fish. But if you think in that early time in your life, when you are for the first time becoming aware that you know something, that you can see something, this awareness of your awareness comes 18 months to two years, who are the people saying, oh, there you are, that's who you are. Oh, you're this kind of person, you're that kind of person. They're holding up that original mirror saying, here's who you are and here's who we are. And it's very hard to fully recognize that impact on the formation of your sense of subjectivity and then ultimately yourself. So, you know, one way that we divide the world in the real dialogue sort of approach to things is that there, that all of our perceptions are subjective. So we see out there, and we see mental images, we hear out there, and we hear ourselves talking to ourselves. We feel out there our physical body, but we also feel in here our emotional activation. So all of these experiences that we're having, these first person perceptions, they're all happening through our own subjectivity, our own snow globe. So the in here and out there is not the world out there and the soul in here, it is all a part of our subjectivity. So from a Don Hoffman point of view, uh, he's saying, look, I and my team of cognitive scientists have come up with mathematical theories that we can test very precisely, mathematically, 
that show that any conscious agent is constructing a sense of perception of the world and what you could call the self or what it's doing. So for him, a conscious agent is any agent or any being or entity that can perceive, decide, and act. So he's got a mathematical formula for perceive, decide, act that can cover anything from a part of your biome, as long as it can perceive and decide and act, to you as a human, to whole groups of humans that together perceive, decide, and act. So his theory really focuses on how these conscious agents interact with each other to make a network that makes reality. And of course, for humans, that's interacting through language by and large, but also through things like artistic expression, symbolism, the internet. There's a lot of ways that we interact, plus touch, plus you know, music. There are many, many ways that we express and then perceive. But what are we perceiving? Or always as humans perceiving our first person version, even if we count the apples together, I'm perceiving the number of apples. And you might not perceive the exact number that I'm perceiving, even though maybe we can test that mathematically, which gets us more precise. But even with mathematics, people still have differences in debate, interpret, et cetera. So, you know, I think this takeaway about the world being our own subjective interface with it, what, what Hoffman calls the virtual headset, it's very hard for many people to believe that, even though they might have seen the first Matrix movie and really liked the implications of it. But I think it's hard for us in real dialogue essentially not to believe it because we're working constantly with the different ways that individuals recall, perceive, desire, want, don't want, hear, see, feel. And those differences are remarkable. They show almost immediately when you practice real dialogue or you facilitate it, they show you straight out, you are not sharing a world. You are not sharing the world. And that it takes an effort to actually know what the other person is seeing, hearing, and feeling. And that effort often is not made when people are emotionally agitated about something that is seems to them to be an important conflict and sometimes seems to be a conflict about what is reality. You know, is there such a thing as money? Is there such a thing as God? Is there such a thing as, I guess, the worth of gold? You know, there are many, many things that people believe there should be such a thing that we agree on. And when we say no, no, it's not as though there's an interest in curiosity. It's more like, well, maybe I'll have to get rid of you, vanquish you, because you don't see the worth of this, you know. So there's a, there's so many different interfaces that are interesting. It's hard for me to even know, you know, which ones to pick out, but that subjectivity all the way down, it's, a, it's an interesting and irritating, annoying insight. For listeners who may not be familiar with your work, I just want to go back to something you said. You were pointing out what you refer to as the six domains, seeing in, seeing out, 
hearing in, hearing out, feeling in, feeling out. And you connected that with a metaphor of a snow globe. And so for people who may not be familiar with your work, the metaphor of the snow globe kind of captures the notion of our individual awareness and perception as a filter through which we interpret reality. So in uh, the meditations that are in, for example, part of learning the skill and practice of real dialogue, of the hearing in, hearing out the six domain meditation and the snow globe, by engaging in these meditations, it brings this into the realm of our subjective awareness where we can actually experience how this arises within our own field of awareness and how our emotions, our uh, senses, our thoughts, and our interpretations are ours uniquely based upon our individuality. So that was that was one thing I wanted to just point out for people who may not be aware of that. Also, why engaging in those meditations, how it's very helpful in maintaining a sense of openness and curiosity, especially when engaging with people who have very different perspectives, rather than getting stuck in challenging, fighting, arguing, coming from curiosity entirely shifts the dimension of of any relationship. When you can really, when I'm really able to hear and listen to somebody who's describing something, an experience that I may not quote, believe is valid, I know now that it's valid for them, that their perception is valid. Even if it may not, quote, be objectively verifiable, it doesn't diminish the validity of that person's reality, their experience of reality. Where I think this gets challenging is we forget, I I forget at times, that it is my subjective interpretation. I get identified with the judgment or the thought in the moment, and I forget myself that I'm the person who's perceiving this, and it's in my own subjective experience. You know, I'm making attributions, sometimes about intention, almost all the time about what something means, a behavior, something I see, and yet, when we take Hoffman's work and bring it into this, understanding and trying to live in the day-to-day reality that there isn't an objective reality is quite unsettling for many people. It's like you're taking, I'm taking away terra firma. There's no longer any ground that I stand on if I if I begin to try to believe or if I listen and I'm I'm challenged to believe that I think that tree is out there. As opposed to, I have a perception of an object, and it's and we can take ten people. We can all sit down in a room, look out the same window, look at the tree, ask each person to draw the tree. You're going to get ten different trees. Yeah, and then when you get to something less concrete, like a self, or money, or God, you have so much variety that it can't even be drawn. So we have these words like tree, or money, or God. And the words give us the impression that there is a thing, something called money, something called tree, instead of these are words that allow us to express perceptions that are divergent. And that very divergence is what makes human cultures interesting. 
It's what makes our experience, as you said, you know, diverse enough that we should inherently have curiosity about somebody else's experience of the tree. However, where the rubber meets, meets the road and where things really go awry is when you have to negotiate and solve problems together where there's a problem like climate change or there's a problem like a pandemic or there's a problem, however you want to define that problem that involves lots and lots of people. And each person is in their own snow globe, but together we have to work out something. And that's where, when we get into the that range of problem and difference and emotional activation, this is where humans can very quickly go into dehumanization, seeing each other as not sort of really human. So that, you know, if we think about the war that's going on in Israel now with Gaza, and we hear at the beginning, each side feels the other side is animal-like. Each side sees the other side is demonic. Each side ascribes to the other side motives that are truly dehumanizing. And that is a very typical situation for humans. That is not unusual. Now, the degree to which you get armed and you start to kill people, that does vary a lot. And obviously still at this point in the 21st century, we're still having very brutal wars as humans wiping out each other. And that's been going on pretty much since uh, we've developed into collective cultures. So this problem of having words and then individual perceptions, words that would give us the idea that we're talking about something out there and perceptions that give us a very strong emotional experience that this is the way it is. And then on top of that, we have emotional needs that at the beginning, as you said, get need, get met through our families. And we try to bring other people under control to get our needs met. And when we can't bring them under the control, we get enraged and feel humiliated. So the setup for humans, particularly, around the issues where we differ about what the world is out there and what might be going on with abstract things like money, God, illness, these things that we can't pin down like a tree. These are very, very complex and I would say fairly self-defeating and, and you know self-delusional issues for humans. And I think it's only now at this very moment with theorists and researchers like Don Hoffman, with physicists like Nima Arkani Hamed, who with a group of physicists are studying the um, essentially the defeat of the theory of space-time. And with things like, you know, real dialogue and other studies of perception, bias, stereotype, we're coming to a point where perhaps we can begin, and this is where I've I'm hoping that Don Hoffman and Nima Arkani Ahmed and so on, I hope they're providing the science where we can follow them, but perhaps we can begin to back off of the idea that we have to dehumanize, we have to avoid conflict, we have to become estranged from each other because we believe that our own perception is the right perception that our perception is the truth, that, you know, whatever it is that we stake our claims on. And I, I strongly believe that humans will never have real peace 
because of our big variations in our perceptions, we're always going to have conflict. We're always going to be, you know, sort of ill at ease with certain people who see things very differently than we do. But I don't believe, I do not believe that war is necessary. I do not believe that we need to kill other people, particularly strangers, particularly people we don't know, that we don't have anything against, really, that we, that we do not need to kill them because they see reality differently than we do. You know, I, I think we may, I feel, or I have an intuition from talking to you, Don Hoffman, listening, talking to other people that I'm interested in, people like Bayo Akamalafi. I believe we're reaching some new frontier right now that is a recognition that we have to be more modest. We have to be more curious. We have to take into account that we don't see things clearly, that we are often wrong, and that we really can't control the bigger picture based on our own needs and desires, our own individual or our group. So I know I just did a whole thing there, but I kind of wanted to bring together what I think is hopeful about Don Hoffman's work is that he's coming up with a truly precise mathematical approach to these problems. And uh, so are a group, you know, there's a group of physicists who are doing the same thing from the other side, looking at the physical world that we call the world out there and seeing how our theories no longer can actually track reality as we humans are discovering it, you know, uh, in the subatomic world and in the world of cosmology. So it's like both sides of the picture are coming into question in ways that are really interesting. The world you know, <laughs> the world out there from the point of view of space-time and the speed of light, those theories, they're failing. Um, same, similarly, the theory that consciousness comes from the physical brain, it's failing, you know. And at the same time, this uh, notion that uh, we have to kill other people in order to get our needs met, I'm hoping that's failing too, that, that paradigm. So... I think maybe this would be a good point. I, I made a list of what I think are some of the commonalities between our conversation with Donald Hoffman and my understanding of your work in real dialogue. And I don't know, I might be pushing this a little too far, but I think in the, on one commonality is both theories highlight that higher order agents are in real dialogue, different participants in the dialogue are co-creating what emerges in dialogue in the same way that our perceptions of reality through the network of conscious agents is really co-created. It's an interconnected system that is, in essence, one system. We can't necessarily experience it or see it from that perspective. However, there's now a scientific understanding demonstrating the factual reality of this, which is still not kind of seeped into our belief systems or what we refer to as common sense. So that would be one point. The other is how complex these systems are, whether you're talking about conscious agents or a human being interacting with another in dialogue. And that that complexity is dynamic. It isn't a static thing. And it evolves over time in the same way as dialogue evolves and as individuals, we each evolve. So there's a dynamism to it. There's also an interdependence. We are all connected and interdependent for depth 
and complexity. And so in one sense, then the quality of our interactions between participants in a dialogue can lead to more misunderstanding and oversimplification, whereas more constructive interactions can lead to greater depth and more a more complex understanding of oneself and other people. I also believe that Donald Hoffman's work, as yours does, challenges some very fundamental assumptions that we all assume are, quote, real and true, and yet they're not. The importance of questioning and examining our assumptions, what's really fundamental, is a process that, I mean, it's something I try to do often, but especially as the calendar rolls to the end of the year, I spend a lot of time at the last couple of weeks of the year going back and thinking about different assumptions that I thought were true, that weren't true at all. I think another thing that both his work and your work do is they go beyond this simplified version of what we think this is, and it gives us tools to explore the complexity of human experience and understanding at a whole other level. And it acknowledges the validity of multiple perspectives, which we can go back into it, but it brings in respect and empathy for others and frequently for ourselves. And then the last point I want to make, which I believe is probably to me one of the most significant, has to do with conflict, which is that understanding each person's, each individual's perception, how it's unique to them, can help build tolerance for different perspectives and patience, which can help at least gain an understanding of where the other party's coming from if you're in conflict. And, and in real dialogue, anyway, the, the conflict is an opportunity to deepen my understanding of myself and the other person. The aim isn't necessarily to go in, I may not resolve. Like, you know, humans are always going to have conflict. There's always going to be disagreement. The question is, can we, as humans, discover methods, learn how to work together so that we don't have to take up weapons and we don't have to harm each other? when we don't necessarily see the same reality at all? Can we truly tolerate others whose beliefs really challenge my ability to not get emotionally activated when they express perceptions that are the opposite of what I may believe or what I have made may have experienced? So I think together, both of your work encourage me to embrace uncertainty and to be open to the mysteries of what is this, what is this all about? How can I make meaning? What are my intentions? Why do I attribute certain things to what I believe they are? And then when I go back, maybe, and I re-examine them, my attributions had no connection with what really was happening. So well, I you know, that, this, this, I want to just pause there with, since I won't really be able to follow this whole thread in a way that I think could help us weave together some of the issues that you're raising so skillfully in what you're saying. I, I think one of the very first and most important issues about how do humans best deal with conflicts, the conflicts, first of all, are absolutely necessary because of our differences in perception. There is no world out there. We cannot see it exactly the same. So given that, Science is one of the best ways, and Don Hoffman does talk about this in his book, The Case Against Reality, that science is a method of inquiry between people. And it's always a method 
of assuming that whatever your theory is or whatever your position is, it's going to be questioned by somebody else and probably is going to be wrong. So you start out with a hypothesis or a point of view or an assumption. You express it with the idea that you want to test it out with somebody else who is perhaps working in your field, practicing the same thing, and going back and forth between different points of view, different kinds of experiments, different ways of seeing things. Over time, science tends to use the language of mathematics, and mathematics is a more universal and precise way to deal with differences than ordinary language, colloquial language. And so, you know, it's not that we all have to become mathematicians in order to deal with our conflicts usefully, but in a certain way, we need to take that as a, an exemplary activity, being able to use some precise language to investigate conflicts so that we can understand the value of difference. And this is really what real dialogue skills are trying to do. They're trying to give us precise ways to speak and to listen and to remain curious in order to investigate our differences so that our differences become valuable in our inquiry into life. Like, how are we going to work with you know, the climate? How are we going to work with economies? And this is on a large scale. How are we gonna make dinner together? Or you know, how are we going to make love? All of those things are going to involve these conflicts. And the conflicts, if we can use a precise language to deal with our conflicts so they become interesting. Our differences then become the basis of creativity and the knowledge of differences then eventually can lead to eliminating stereotypes and, re and reducing bias because when we avoid conflict, we increase stereotypes and we increase bias. So there's a way that science becomes a model and you know mathematics becomes a metaphor in a sense for how humans can best deal with differences that they consider to be very, very important differences about the way they see reality and about how to solve problems. The interesting thing that science leads us to ultimately, and again, Don points this out, is that every scientific investigation, a large investigation, let's say like classical physics and the ways that it came to understand gravity and you know the principles of our physical universe, those ways were developed by humans investigating together their differences. And then that paradigm led to its own undoing in quantum mechanics because the questions that were being asked in that paradigm could no longer be answered by that paradigm. So there had to be a change in the paradigm, a scientific revolution. And that's where we are again now with quantum mechanics. There is an end to being able to answer the question about what happens at the quantum level because that question cannot be answered by investigating smaller and smaller spaces. It's just not possible to do that. People who are doing that investigation are finding that out. So again, that paradigm, quantum mechanics, has brought people to the edge of investigating the paradigm, and they're now looking for a new one, which is a theory that would look at what is it that generates space-time? Space-time, the speed of light and so on, will no longer be fundamental. They won't be the fundamental premises. There'll be something else that's generating that paradigm or that world that we perceive.
perceive ourselves living in. So I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that in some ways, real dialogue wants to be an ordinary language. What mathematics is in a scientific investigation, allowing people to deal with differences in a way that opens up the creativity of those differences. And in the end, gives a more precise understanding of the world we live in, because you're right, we establish that world by talking with each other. We establish that world by sharing our perceptions and there is no other way to establish it because it isn't out there. We're having to establish it through our investigations, whether they lead to classic classical physics, to quantum mechanics, or to the investigation of physical reality beyond space-time. Now I'm just talking here about a particular branch of science, but I think that another way to understand uh, what it is that Real Dialogue is trying to do is that is to look at even the evolution of, let's say, in a human lifetime, what it's like to be an infant that investigates the physical world just from a sensory motor perspective to the toddler who recognizes I'm in here and the world is out there because they've created that sense of self, that sense of being embodied, to then a child that shares language with others and says, I'm this kind of person, what kind of person are you? To then an adult that has the capacity of being able to see things in a more complex way and not simply return to those tenants from early life, like I need to bring you under control in order to feel safe myself. So over the course of the human lifetime, by the time you get to adulthood, there's the possibility there, either you know, actually digging in your heels and becoming rigid and becoming a rigid conformist to something like, this is the way the world is. That's one option for a human adult. But there's also this other option of exploring these differences and beginning to understand that as a human, being aware of the way I see and hear and feel, I have options for working with difference, for working with aggression, for working with belief systems that the other beings here don't have. The dogs, the cockroaches, the rocks, the trees, they don't have these options. But I have this awareness, the way I see and hear and feel, I have language, I can investigate that. And now maybe I can be precise in investigating it in a way that brings about an increased curiosity and an increased humility and an increased sense of mystery because there's a big sort of often I don't know. You know, I truly don't know. Sometimes I don't know what you and I are talking about, even. I'm just kind of I'm just kind of going along with it in the way that. It's very interesting. So, you know, I feel real dialogue adds this precision that's that's a little analogous. It's a bit analogous to mathematics adding precision to scientific investigation. Real dialogue adds a certain kind of precision to ordinary everyday conflict and difference and how to make use of those differences in a way to experience life in a more complex, mysterious, and as you said also, unified way because you begin to see that you don't know what's happening here without the others. Well, I see, I mean, we're getting really close to the end. I just want to throw, this is going to come out of left field, 
but maybe a, a different way of turning this inside out. So if we, if I think of each person as a participant in a dialogue as a conscious agent, according to Hoffman's theory, then uh, dialogue becomes this interaction, not just between individuals, but also between these distinct realities. And each person brings their unique like user interface into the conversation. So this kind of a different way of looking at it is that the, the participants in the dialogue don't just exchange words or ideas. They're essentially navigating and harmonizing multiple realities. And in essence, when you're in a facilitated real dialogue, that's really what the facilitator is doing. It's helping each person kind of navigate their own perceptions, reframe them to express them from their subjective perspective and leaving room to see if there's harmony between the different realities. And so it's developed, my experience of it is, it's it's like it develops this shared space where these different realities can meet and interact and co-create and ideally create a new shared understanding or a new reality that does involve this deepened empathy, enhanced creativity, right? If I'm less defensive and self-protective, now I can start looking at the potential to develop these new ideas, not just understanding another person's perspective, but really appreciating that the experience they're having is almost a different version of reality. And I think the power under this framework is that in that shared space with that structure, there's a really, I, I feel a genuinely transformative potential arises that I'm not just sharing ideas within this reality, but I can now develop new insights about my own way that I perceive, but also new understandings of how other people see their realities. And I think the one thing we left out, which I'm just gonna throw in at the end, is this also brings with it, I think, a greater sense of, of an ethical responsibility that misunderstandings or conflict are not, and I've heard you say this, it's not just a difference of opinion, it's really a clash between different realities. And so to navigate that ethically requires tolerance, patient respect, and a really unbiting commitment to really understand and try to step into the other person's perspective so that we can solve probably what I perceive as kind of the greatest challenge that we face as a society now is we seem to be losing this ability to engage in meaningful dialogue. And without that, what we're seeing, what I'm witnessing is I, I perceive an erosion in social cohesion and the ability for us to really deal with significant challenges that we face that can only be dealt with if we have much bigger, broader understandings from a bigger perspective. We need input from people who see things differently. We need to take in the best from everyone in order to solve the problems we face and this is the basis for our survival as a species. The time is now. I mean, this is one of the reasons that I did, you know, multiple trainings with you in bringing this into the world. I find it incredibly valuable for really being able to empathize and to hear other people's perspective and to, to become more aware from feeling in, hearing in, seeing in what my attributions are, how I'm making sense of something, and then 
questioning those assumptions, trying to become aware of them. And my experience has been that it's through dialogues in this format with different people that I'm really beginning to see other people in a different way and being able to really get a sense of how they're experiencing their reality. Well, you know, what you're bringing up here in some ways circles back to the idea of waking up because it's the waking up to the unity, to the love, to the sense of this deep oneness and connection. And that unity is reached when you're dealing with individual people by recognizing differences in a humanizing and respectful way, because you begin to recognize oh, here I might overlap with this other person in the way I perceive something, but over here I'm learning something new and I'm adding to my sense of what it means to be a human, a human being, that a human being has certain kinds of perceptions, certain ways of seeing and hearing and feeling and is aware of those. And in a certain sense, we create the theories that we have about the world from the human point of view, we're not creating our theories from the cockroach point of view, from the point of view of the dog. We're creating our theories from the human point of view. And in a sense, all of those theories, whether they're theories about space-time or what the tree is or what money is, all of those theories are about being human. They're all about the human perspective, which we can share through words and our ability to talk about the ways that we see and hear and feel things. It, those things become the sort of basis for that sense of unity as a human, for feeling at ease in being human. And if you can't do that, then there is very much the sense of not being at ease and not loving humanity and not liking being in the human form. So I, you know, I want to think that there is something hopeful at this moment when things in many ways often do seem so fractured and so hopeless from the point of view of the public domain and media and so on. But I, I believe that there, there is a new development that's coming among humans and it's coming from physicists, it's coming from cognitive science, it's coming from uh, really the West encountering Buddhism and understanding mindfulness. It's coming also from recognizing the importance of dialogue, the absolute importance of a precise kind of dialogue for discovering what it means to be human. I'm very grateful to you, Mike, because you helped me think, but also I'm grateful to Don Hoffman that he shares these ideas with us, that he's so open to talking about his discoveries, that he puts his work online, that he is modest, and that he's a really important scientist, a cognitive scientist operating at this moment that you, are, you and I are also on Earth. I think that we'll continue to talk about Hoffman's work. We'll definitely bring Hoffman back. We'll definitely have larger conversations about this. But I do feel we've kind of put some of the pieces together in a very fundamental way in this, in this uh, conversation or cogitation about what we talked about with him. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment right now to go to realdialogue.com and join our membership community. For a short time, we're offering annual and lifetime membership in the Real Dialogue community at a very limited cost. There you have access to countless hours of teachings, interviews, 
conversations with Polly, Mike, and prominent scientists, sages, and seekers who share your interests in waking up and flourishing. Again, go to realdialogue.com, join in a live conversation with Polly and Mike through your membership. The second Tuesday of each month, we have an AMA that we do together. As always, we really look forward to meeting you and to hearing your perspective. Please like and share the podcast with friends and family. If you know of people who you think would benefit from this conversation and would like to take part in our monthly AMAs, consider sharing this with family and friends and consider giving them the gift of membership in our community. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Coltrane and is part of the Center for Real Dialogue. It is available on all major podcast channels for free. Thank you for listening. And I also would like to just take a moment to announce the upcoming foundational training in Real Dialogue and Dialogue Therapy being held in Stowe, Vermont at the Trap Lodge. There are three four-day sessions in the next training. Session two will be February 1st through 4th, and session three will be April 18th to the 21st of 2024. For more information, you can go to realdialogue.com and from the menu, select foundational training. All the details are there. If you have any questions about the training, or anything in the podcast, you can email me at mike at realdialogue.com.